The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. You would turn with me in your New Testaments to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 will primarily be in James chapter 2 this evening. Obviously, James chapter 2 is a very familiar passage to us, especially because of verses 14 through the end of the chapter, where James discusses faith and works and the relationship there between the two. Notice in verse 22 that Abraham's faith is described as that which was made perfect, and we'll consider how and why in a little bit. But consider that there is a concept of perfect faith. Abraham's faith was made perfect, therefore his faith was perfect. And this is not a description of the father Abraham as one who transcends us, but as one in whom steps in whose steps we can follow. That's why he's called father. In Romans 4 it talks about how we are his children if we walk in the steps of Abraham. That is the steps of faith. And so really Christians altogether are individually to have perfect faith. But what is perfect faith? Well, we know that faith is essential to salvation. Hebrews eleven six says that without faith it is impossible to please God. You must believe that he is. And you must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Consider that faith is perfect as it is complete. And we see two components of faith in Hebrews eleven six. You've got to believe that God exists, but you also got to believe that God rewards those who diligently seek him. And that's really what that word translated into made perfect means. It's the verb form of the adjective teleos, which is found a couple of times in the first chapter of James. And it means complete, as Strong defines it, wanting nothing necessary to completeness. And so where you have a pie with eight pieces and only seven are there because someone ate one of them, that pie is not teleos, it's incomplete. But if the pie has all its pieces, it is teleos, it is complete. And, and so in what way are we to have perfect or complete faith? Because that's certainly something that, as we read in James chapter 2, is necessary for a Christian. The opposite of perfect faith, therefore, would be incomplete faith. So, for example, in Hebrews eleven six, maybe someone believes that God is, but he doesn't believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so they may believe he exists, but therefore they don't diligently seek him because they don't think God will reward such a person. They just believe that you've got to believe God exists. Well, of by definition concerning perfect faith, that faith is imperfect. It's not complete. It only has one of its components. And now it's a lot more detailed and there's more depth to it than that, but that's just an example. Consider another example in John 12:42, when even among the rulers, many believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's another example of faith that is not perfect. They did have faith. They believed in him, but it wasn't perfect because they didn't confess him. You've got to have that belief in him. They did believe he was the Messiah, but they didn't confess that because they feared men. Faith is not pleasing to God unless, as James 2 describes it, at least in one way, faith is perfect. What is perfect faith? What is complete faith? Well, I want us to notice furthermore in verse 23 that that faith that was made perfect in Abraham is that which was accounted to him for righteousness. So that's the faith which justifies man before God. 
Not a faith that is incomplete, but a faith that is complete. But really, what is that faith in its essence? How does it look? How does it appear? I want us to understand that James chapter 2 and verses 14 through 26 is something familiar to us, I think primarily because in the majority of times it's looked at and studied and considered in discussion between Christians and from the pulpit and in Bible classes, it's considered contextually, yes, it's not abused, but it's always considered for the most part in most times and in most contexts from the perspective of refuting the doctrine of salvation by faith only. And that's certainly a good treatment of the text. But that's not even what James is talking about. In James chapter 1, in verse 1, it says that he addressed this epistle to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And we know that to likely be figuratively 12 tribes of spiritual Israel. And if it's not the figurative 12 tribes of spiritual Israel, and it is speaking of primarily a Jewish audience, he's speaking to Jewish Christians. Christians who came out of the Jewish faith, who are Jewish by heritage. He's writing this epistle to Christians and he's informing them what perfect faith or faith that is right in the sight of God, that pleases God, what that exactly is. He's not telling them that you need more than just mere belief in order to be saved and added to the kingdom initially. Certainly that is the case, but he's saying that if you want to stand right in the sight of God, you need to have a faith like Abraham, like Rahab. It needs to be perfect or complete. Well, what exactly does that mean? I want us to not just go back from verse 14, but I want us to consider that perfect faith is the context of the entire chapter. And really, I want to suggest to you that it's an extension from what we read in chapter one that we know certainly to be dealing with the concept of being doers of the word and not hearers only. Being a hearer of the word, but not a doer is a type of imperfect faith. But being a doer of what you hear is a type of perfect faith. He's following through with this general principle of how we deal with God's word as Christians. Are we going to be doers of it primarily, I think, is what chapter 1 talks about, but obviously from different angles. And chapter 2 has much to do with that in the context of perfect faith. And I want us to notice in the first 13 verses his discussion of a Christian and that Christian's response to or lack of response to the faith, or more specifically in verse 8, what he calls the royal law. And then he's going to illustrate what transgression of law actually is. And it's very telling as we get into then the discussion beginning with verse 14 of faith and works, and where that came from and what perfect faith is. I want us to notice firstly in James 2 and verse 1, he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. And that's generally how we associate the first 13 verses, a discussion of, of favoritism, of prejudice, of partiality. That's certainly one of the details of this chapter. But there's an underlying general theme, I suggest to you. And first, what verse 1 suggests is that the discussion in the more general sense, the specific being the sin of partiality, in the more general sense, it's a discussion of an object, a standard, being held in practice or not being held in practice. When he speaks of the faith with the definite article, like it does in other places in the scripture, it's referring not to our faith as an individual, but the faith, something outside of us. It's an objective faith. We know that to be the gospel of Christ. And we can explain it in this way. Like I mentioned before, it's, it's the faith, a standard that is held. Don't hold the faith with partiality, but it's a standard of faith which is held in practice, that's what it means. Don't hold it with partiality. How would you help hold it? 
with impartiality. That means don't practice it with partiality. And so it's, it's an object of faith because it incites faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. What the word of God does is it incites faith in us, but that faith that comes from the word of God is not mere intellectual assent to facts, but it is a practice of what was heard. And we know that to be obedience of faith, and that's what Romans is all about. Romans chapter 1 speaks of, in verse 5, the obedience of faith or obedience to the faith, the object of faith. And we know from other places that faith itself is very much an action. It's a work. We looked at a section of scripture in John 6 this morning, and there in John 6, when they asked Jesus, what must we do that we may work the works of God? He said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. And that belief we know is not just assent to the facts. This is something we know. We don't need to discuss that salvation is um, by more than just faith alone. That's not what we're discussing this evening. We know that. Faith in and of itself is a work, but it's not a work simply just that believing is something you do, but biblical faith is doing something God's word says. And so he's discussing the practice of a standard, which he calls the faith, and we know that to be the gospel of Christ. But I want us to notice in verse 8 that he introduces this concept of a royal law, and he's not changing the subject. In verse 1 he says, don't hold the faith with partiality. And then in verse 8 he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, and he gives us what that royal law is. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well, but if you show partiality. Here is a law, it's objective, it's a standard. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality in practice of that law, then you sin. Don't hold the faith with partiality. Here's this royal law. And he's not saying that the only part of the faith is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but he's specifically dealing with that law. And he calls it royal law because as Strong defines that word, basilikos in the Greek, royal, it has to do with something that is regal or belonging to the sovereign or a king, but figuratively it can just mean preeminent. And I think that's exactly what he's using it as. You shall love your neighbor as yourself is the preeminent law, much because of what Jesus said about it in Matthew 22. Remember, the scribe says, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God, and the second is like it, love your neighbor. The reason that's the greatest commandment and then the second greatest commandment is because on these two laws hang, or these two laws hang all the law and the prophets. They're, they're preeminent. If you are loving God and you are loving your neighbor, then every other detailed law, specific law comes into that. It plays into that. You love God by keeping every one of his commandments and you love your neighbor by keeping every one of God's commandments that pertains to your neighbor. It is a royal law because it's preeminent. Now, the problem is here is a law, a standard, and they are holding it with partiality. He says, if you really fulfill it, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. Consider his discussion of this transgression, and it really brings about this concept of what kind of obedience God requires. And we know, especially as we progress in chapter 2 of James, that that obedience is not separate from faith, but it's much to do with faith. And they're intertwined and inseparable. But we can understand more about the relationship between faith and works and what a perfect faith is by this first section, especially as it pertains to this transgression of partiality. And so there is a practice of holding a standard that is the faith and he mentions that standard, of course, is the royal law. But I want us to notice verses 8 and 9 in the contrast. If you really fulfill the royal law, the suggestion by James is that these brethren he's writing to, some of them think that they are actually loving their neighbor as themselves. If you really do, though, 
He says, you do well. But here's the problem. If you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The specific law he's speaking of is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But he says, if you use that, if you hold that faith, if you hold that law, that commandment with partiality, then you actually transgress it, which doesn't indicate you don't love anyone, but you show that with partiality. You're only loving a certain people. He says, don't hold the faith with partiality. And I think we're very familiar with the specific illustration he brings up. And it's one that we ourselves have to be careful about in other contexts and other classes and other kinds of topics and categories of not showing partiality, of not showing prejudice. He gives an illustration that was especially something that was problematic within the Christians that he addressed this epistle to. In verse 2, he says, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothes, and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so we have a partiality that is based on the class system of rich and poor. And so two people come into the assembly and partiality is shown. They show favoritism to this rich man simply based on the fact that this man is rich. And then they treat the poor man in a lesser way. They show honor to the rich man. They dishonor the poor man. And therefore they show partiality. That's the problem at hand. He says, don't hold the faith in that way. And we noted that the specific discussion is verse 8, the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, they're loving one neighbor as themselves, but they're not loving the other neighbor as themselves. A neighbor is not based on how much money they make. A neighbor is based on whoever anyone is. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 in verses 25 through 37. And we know that from childhood, that here you have this man that fell among the thieves and he was near death beaten and taken advantage of and his things were stolen and he was left for dead and here's this levite that comes down the road does nothing for him and it's likely as this was from jerusalem to jericho that this man was returning from worship as a jew so this levite comes along his jewish brother and and part of the the priestly tribe and he does nothing for him then a priest himself comes along and does nothing for him but then a samaritan and we know that jews and samaritans have no dealings with each other the samaritan takes that man and gives him what he needs and the illustration is that you are a neighbor to everyone but that also of necessity means that everyone is your neighbor and so when he says love your neighbor as yourself he means not just the rich man but the poor man and so when they treated the rich man with love and they treated the poor man in an unfavorable and dishonorable way, they held that law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself with partiality. They held the faith with partiality. And James is saying, don't do that, brethren. Otherwise, you will become what he labeled them as in verse four, judges with evil thoughts. I want us to notice chapter four says something about becoming judges with evil thoughts. In chapter 4 and verse 11, James says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? We know very well that the Bible doesn't condemn judging, period. It condemns some components of judging. 
But Jesus himself says, judge with righteous judgment. And out of the same mouth proceeded the words, judge not that you be not judged. So we make a differentiation between what judgments are acceptable before God and are commanded before God and what judgments are condemned before God. And we know that righteous judgment is judgment that is based on a standard that is infallible. It applies to every man. And that's why in that same chapter in Matthew 7, when he says, judge not that you be not judged, he goes on to say, make judgments based on prophets. How, are, how do we know whether they're false or whether they're prophets from God? You will know them by their fruits. And that means their teaching is going to show if they are from God. If they teach something that is in contradiction to God's law, you know them to be false prophets. That the fruit, that's the fruit he's talking about. And so that's a righteous judgment. It has to do with making judgments based on the law that the true lawgiver has given. And so this discussion of partiality has much to do with that. And that's why he calls them judges with evil hearts. They've taken away the standard. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm sure that they remembered the parable of Jesus where he showed that everyone is your neighbor. And so when the rich man came in alongside the poor man, they should have treated them equally. They should have shown honor to both of them. That would have been loving neighbor as yourself. But when they made that distinction, that judgment based on the outer appearance, this man's obviously rich. He has all of these nice things on. This man's obviously poor, dressed in rags. And then they held that law, loving neighbor as self, with partiality. They held it back from the poor man and they gave it to the rich man. They made a judgment, but it wasn't a judgment from God's law. It was actually a judgment which was caused to supersede and replace God's law. Where God says, love the rich man and the poor man, they said, no, I'm going to love the rich man, not the poor man. And that's obviously a judgment from an evil heart and evil thoughts, but it does much the same as what James mentioned in chapter four. It places yourself on the throne. You usurp God's throne when you do that. You say that the judgment that this man is rich and this man is poor is more important than God saying, love everyone as yourself. And he shows them furthermore what that kind of partiality does. The reason we need to rely upon a judgment and standard of God is because our judgments are often misguided. They judge this person worthy of better treatment because he's rich than this person who is dressed in rags. But I want us to notice that James goes on to point out the irony in such a judgment. That usually when we make such superficial judgments, they actually contradict the objective reality. Notice in verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So you take this standard of saving faith and you deny the poor man of that standard and your treatment of him with it in submission to it. And you give it to this rich man. But really, if you step back and you read the whole gospel you see that the majority of people who obey the gospel are not the rich and noble and mighty, but the poor and lowly and humble. First Corinthians chapter 1 speaks of this. In verse 26, you see your calling, brethren, that not many according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And he continues to progress through that. He's not saying that God is not calling everyone to the gospel. He's saying that the ones who are answering the call are generally not the rich and powerful. They have too many distractions. They don't care enough about spiritual things. But when you have a person who has nothing to his name, he's going to be more likely to hold on to spiritual riches that he doesn't see and doesn't yet have. But he's promised as a certainty. That's a general truth. That's why Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
He continues in verse 6 to show the irony of their judgments. You have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? So what the rich did is normally, like we remember the parable of the unforgiving servant, is they have a servant who owes them money. And instead of showing mercy to that servant, that master would practice regularly finding that person in public on the streets, grabbing them by their robes, dragging them into courts, and taking them to law where they have no choice. They're either going to pay or go to prison. And since they obviously couldn't pay, it was basically a prison sentence. No mercy whatsoever. No leniency. No long-suffering. He's saying the rich generally do that. And on top of that, verse 7, do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? We know that as per 1 Timothy chapter 6, there's a lot of temptations which come from the desire to be rich. And that's true in any society. The rich are generally characterized as immoral and godless people. That is not the absolute across the board truth, but it would be a general truth. There might be exceptions, but the rule is this, that they are generally the people that blaspheme that noble name by which you are called, whether in absolute verbal blasphemy that is very specific or just in the way they live their lives. And that was certainly true in regard to this time. Remember in Ephesians or Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, when Paul was preaching the gospel in the city of the great goddess Diana, there was this man named Demetrius and he was a silversmith who, who made and sold silver shrines of, of Diana. And that was how he made a lot of money. And then he's the one that caused that uproar against the faith and against Christ's apostle because his trade was in danger because of the gospel that Paul was preaching. Generally speaking, this is how the rich conduct themselves. And so what he's just doing is he's showing the irony in their judgments. What he's not saying is that you should have treated the poor man good and treated the rich man bad. He's saying you should treat them both right because if you treated the poor man bad but the rich, or the poor man good and the rich man bad, that would have been partiality just as much as the other side. But what he is doing is he's showing how impure the judgments of man often are. How many times have, have we as individuals, I'm speaking for myself, seen someone in an opportunity to teach them the gospel but we decided not to because of some outward appearance. They, they just don't look like they'd be someone who'd be interested. That's foolish because it may be that that person would have latched on and held on to that tide and, and gone on to do a lot of mighty and wonderful things for the kingdom of God. We don't know. Our judgments that are superficial are often completely wrong, and that's what James is illustrating. He's not saying show partiality rather to the poor man. He's saying you should have treated them both the same. And he goes on to explain why it was so wrong, why it didn't count for anything to treat the rich man good since they treated the poor man in the opposite way. He says, if you really do this, you do well, but you've shown partiality, you've committed sin. And then he gives an example of, of why they broke the law, because they did show love to their neighbor, the rich man. He's not saying they didn't, and he's not saying they did wrong in showing that kind of treatment to the rich man. He's saying that they didn't love their neighbor as their self because while they did it to the rich man, they didn't do it to the poor man, and he's also their neighbor. He says in verse 10, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. They stumbled in one point. They observed the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself when they treated the rich man right. But as soon as they turned over and treated the poor man wrong, they broke that law because he's their neighbor too, and it pertained to him too. 
He gives another example in verse 11. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The fact is that the whole law must be kept. With regard to the royal law, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Such encompasses every person, rich, poor, male, female, slave, free, whatever it may be, whatever race they may be, it encompasses everyone of mankind. And so when you showed it to the rich man, but you didn't the poor man, you broke that law. If you showed it to the poor man, but you didn't show it to the rich man, you broke that law. You cannot decide to keep a commandment of God only when it's convenient to you, is what he's saying. And that's exactly what they did. And it doesn't count for anything that they showed the rich man love because they broke that law that they suggested they were keeping by not showing love to the poor man. But that also pertains to his example of verse 11. So someone says, murder is a lot worse than adultery. And so if, if I commit adultery, but I've never murdered anybody, then, then God's probably going to accept me. But we need to understand that murder and adultery are just parts of the same law. There's one law. And we need to understand that. We know that there is a, a topic of discussion or a context of discussion where we can say that do not commit adultery is a law, do not murder is a law. But really, they're parts of a whole that is the law. And so when you commit adultery, but you do not murder, you still broke that same law. When you do murder, but you don't commit adultery, you still have broken that same law. And you can throw any sins in there that you can think of. Lying, stealing, jealousy, wrath. With God's law, we can't choose to observe some commands and leave others out. And we can't choose to observe some commands in the way that is most convenient or easy for us to observe them. Because if we hold any law of God with partiality, whether it's regarding a law that we treat someone in a certain way, or it's regarding a, a law of service primarily to God, but, but we treat it with partiality because maybe we do this when we're in our regular time of life, but when we're on vacation, we're a completely different person. And so we observe that law here, but in this context, we don't, we hold that law with partiality just in a slightly different way. That's not how God's law works. If God commands, it must be obeyed, and it must be obeyed in any circumstance where it applies. And that's why this exhortation comes in verse 12. He says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. He mentioned that phrase firstly in chapter 1 and verse 25, the law of liberty. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. The law of God, the law of Christ, the gospel, liberates us from sin. But James is showing that it only liberates the one who does it from sin. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John 8, verse 31. He said, if you abide in my words, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. If you abide in my word, which is the same as the truth, you are disciples. But also if you abide in my truth, it'll make you free. Notice in chapter 1 and verse 25, he says, The doer of the word, not just the hearer only, is blessed in what he does. How is he blessed? He receives the blessing of the law of liberty, namely in its own title, in its own name, a liberation from sin. So he's saying, don't just abstain from committing murder. Don't just abstain from committing adultery. Don't just show love to the rich man. Show love to all who are defined as your neighbor because you're going to be judged by the totality of the law. Obey every single command God gives you to obey and obey it in its fullest sense. Not just in part, but in its fullest sense. And verse 13 pertains to that specific sin of partiality. 
So speak and so do as those who will be judged by this law in its entirety. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's this poor man and you have no compassion on him or else you would show him love. And that's because you've made a judgment that there's something lesser in this poor man. And even if you have that initial inclination that this poor man dressed in rags is is maybe not as worthy of my love as this rich man that is decked to the nines, maybe you have that initial thought. It's something we've got to fight against. That's a temptation, and we don't have to succumb to it. We can fight against it. And what he says is the compassion you might have and you should have for that man of lesser degree should supersede and triumph over your judgment. Because that's certainly what God promises in the end. Because if that was not so, then we'd all be going to hell. The reason why we have hope is because his mercy triumphs over his judgment. But it's not shown to the ones who have shown no mercy themselves. We've got to understand that while he's speaking of partiality, he's, he's speaking of it in a context that is more general about being doers of the word continually, being individuals who don't just choose, pick and choose which law to keep and which law is not as important. And on top of that, he's, he's talking about us not being those who decide to observe this law in 99% of the cases, but in this case, it's a little different and I'm not going to observe it in this way. Showing partiality to the rich man and not showing love to the poor man is that example. So what does this have to do with faith and works? Because he continues in the context, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? I want us to consider that verse 1, when he says, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus with partiality, as it's connected in the context with verse 8, the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself is a practice of a standard of faith, but that practice of a standard of faith is a demonstration of a person's faith, much like what the rest of the context discusses, your faith, a faith that you have. And did you notice in verse eight, the implication is that they made a claim. If you really fulfill the royal law, there were people that were claiming, I have fulfilled the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's your evidence? I showed love to the rich man. But he shows that there's a contradiction there because while you make that claim, I have faith, in other words, as the context continues, or I have faithful obedience to God's word, which is what biblical faith is. You say that, but actually you show partiality, so you actually transgressed that law. So he's not picking up a different discussion. He's just rolling down that hill and the snow's picking up more snow. It's, it's growing and it's showing and he's bringing it home. He's showing us that the faith that actually saves is complete. It's not something we just pick and choose with. It's not something that we just decide what is most convenient, but it's a faith that is complete. It's perfect. It's a faith in the following verses that has works. Consider what faith that is dead looks like. And obviously the context would suggest to us that that's a faith that is not perfect or it's a faith that is incomplete. And verse 14, he says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? And he gives an example again. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? And so this sounds a lot like this idea of a poor man who is destitute of clothes and daily food. He's naked and destitute of daily food. Here's an individual that you see that is is in dire straits and you should have that mercy of verse 13 on him and show love because he's your neighbor. Mercy should triumph over any kind of judgment of partiality or, or judgment of prejudice that you might have. 
Here's an example. Here's a knowledge of need to be met. And we know that what God would have for us to do is summed up in that verse. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know that. And so you say this, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. I know that that God wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, so I have well wishes for you. But he demonstrates how that doesn't work to just do that. If you do not give them the things which are needed from the body, for the body, what does it profit? It's like the man saying, I love my neighbor as myself, but he leaves this poor man out of the equation. It's very similar to that. It's an empty claim of faith. And so it can be this general concept of faith, but it can also be a specific example of keeping a law by faith, like loving your neighbor as yourself. You say that, but you don't do something. It doesn't profit. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In verses 19 through 20, he gives an example furthermore, a a graphic example of dead faith. He says, you believe there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? He brings up, obviously, a drastic and dramatic example. But mere belief that God is, is not enough. And you can see that with the demons. They know God exists. They even have an intimate association in their knowledge of who God is. They know more than mere man. And we could even throw Satan into this equation where in the garden, the serpent spoke to God. And with the story of Job and behind the scenes, Satan and and God converse. So there is obviously an intimate knowledge of God that we don't even have right now. But he says, even though they believe in God and tremble before him because they don't do anything about it in obedience, that faith is dead. It's not something that profits. I want us to notice in verse 18 that dead faith is really described for us. When someone will say, you have faith and I have works, what they're doing is separating the two. And that's what death is. It's a separation, which is why he says in verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. What they're doing is separating faith and works. You have faith, I have works. They're separate. And then he goes on to say, wait a second, they can't be separated. That's what dead faith is. It's incomplete. Because it's not shown with works. But he goes on also to describe this faith that is perfect. Faith that is complete. Faith that is therefore alive. And faith that is one that justifies before God. There in verse 18, you, someone will say you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So by definition, a faith that is complete is faith that means it's not separated from works and therefore is shown or demonstrated by works. We have an example of that in verses 10 and 11. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. If you if he says, do not commit adultery and also do not murder, but you do commit adultery or you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. You have faith. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That involves all commandments. So an individual that says, I have faith in God and abstains from murder but commits adultery is not demonstrating his faith. He's actually demonstrating the exact opposite. He's lacking faith. In every area of the law or the faith, it's shown your faith by your works. And we know that to be the works of God that are ordained by him, the works that we keep in obedience of faith. And it's anything that he commands. And so to take part of it and leave the other part out is 
is to sin, not to show faith. Someone says, I have faith, but I just don't get this part of God's word. They have just demonstrated they don't have faith. Not the faith that justifies, not the faith that is described as perfect. And he gives an example, a one that is very familiar to us. In verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect or complete? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. I want us to notice first that he says that Abraham was justified by works. That word justified is a legal term from a Greek word, which means to render just or innocent. There's a reason why he gave the command and exhortation in verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. You'll be judged by the whole law, so keep the whole law. Don't just show partiality or, or show love to the rich man and not to the poor man. That's partiality. And even though you've kept it halfway, if you will, in that situation, you've sinned in the whole point of the law. And so there's this exhortation. Make sure you live in the way that you have the knowledge that you're going to be judged in every point of the law. So that you can be just before God, rendered just or innocent. Have you done what the law says, in other words? And if you have done what the whole law says, then you are just. If you have not done what the whole law says, you've kept 99% of it, but the one sir sin is kept out. That's enough to condemn you as sinners. And that's why he gives Abraham as this example. He's not speaking of the beginning of Abraham's faith at the point that he was saved. He's speaking of something years down the road where Abraham had been serving God. And in the particular context of Genesis chapter 2, the command was given long before it was carried out. And it began to be obeyed long before it was completed. Abraham was told by God to go to the land of Moriah. He'd specify the mountain. And there you would offer up your, your son Isaac. He takes with him two lads, all the supplies, and they make that journey. I don't know exactly how far it was, but we know that it wasn't just turning the corner in your car and you're there in a split second. That took faith. It took obedience. He went. If he was not going to obey, he would have never even gone. But he gets there. He tells those two lads, I'm going to go further. And then they climb the mountain with all the supplies. He builds the altar. He sets Isaac, his son, up on the altar. Isaac's wondering, where is the offering? He Little does he know that he's the offering. And it's not until he raises his hand with the knife to slay his son that we remember the angel stopped him and said, do not lay your hand on the lad, nor do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your, only, your, your son, your only son from me. We might wonder why did it take so much? Did he not leave? Did he not gather all the supplies? Did he not take his servants with him to help him on the journey? Did he not walk all the way up to that mountain? If he did all of that, got to that mountain, he got to the peak. And then that's where he stopped. He never took the knife. He never set Isaac up there bound. He just stopped there and he says, well, that should have been enough, God. I should have, I should have been justified by now. I should have demonstrated my faith to you by now, but that's not enough. You're asking for too much. So he goes back. It wasn't until he raised his knife to slay his son. And it's that way with the law in general. All right, so I haven't done this. I haven't done this. I haven't done this. And I've done this thing. I don't understand why God is seeing me as one who is a sinner. I've done one little thing. Or I failed to do one little thing that he's called me to do. But that's not how faith works. It's not until that command was completed in its totality. Now I know you fear God. 
In Hebrews 11, it explains that he concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he received him in a figurative sense. So what Abraham could have said is, you know what, I am going to do this because I believe God's able to raise Isaac from the dead. But then he doesn't raise his knife. What that shows is a wavering faith, not a perfect faith. Doesn't carry out the works. He manifested that belief. He manifested that trust by obeying God. Then he gives the example of Rahab in verse 25. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And Joshua 2 and verse 9, the faith of Rahab is displayed when she told those messengers, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. In other words, God's got the power. I heard about it. I believe it. And I know that we are destined to be given to your hand because it's his will. And then she goes on in verse 11 to explain that the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This is a Gentile. This is a woman of Jericho. And not only that, this is a harlot. And she's showing she believes in the one and only true God. But it doesn't say that she was justified by faith. In fact, in James chapter 2, it doesn't say anything about Rahab's faith. It says she was justified by works. But in Hebrews 11 and verse 31, it says by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And she's contrasted with those who did not believe. But why is she described as one who has faith in contrast with those who did not believe? It's not simply because she said what she said. That was part of it. But she was justified when she sent out or received the messengers and sent them out another way. She showed kindness toward Jehovah when she showed kindness toward his servants. She knew they were his. And then in delivering the spies, she aided Israel's work, which was the work of God at the time, in the service of God to subdue the promised land. But she did not demonstrate that faith before God without her actions that she took. Thus also, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I might point out one more thing. Why Abraham and Rahab? Why the father of faith and, and this Gentile harlot? Because it doesn't matter who you are and what people might think of you from the least to the greatest in my, the, man, the mind of man, each and every person is going to be justified by the same way. In other words, it doesn't matter if someone's a preacher or an elder or grandpa and grandma who have been in the church for a long time and we look up to, they are the ones we should follow. It doesn't matter the, the depth or the magnitude of someone's faith in your mind. They're going to be justified before God the same way you are going to be justified before God. With faith that is perfect or complete, faith that, that knows no bounds but will do whatever God says for it to do and in any context that he says for us to do it. And when we take this all into its its totality, we can understand that it's, it's more than just merely, I believe God, so I'm going to do this little bit for him. It's, I believe God, and I'm going to obey every single thing he tells me to do. I'm not going to try to rationalize. And if there is a law that I think that I can do that, I'm going to do that, like loving neighbor as yourself. But then there comes a circumstance where it's a little more difficult to do. Let's say an enemy that Jesus says we need to love as well. I'm not going to decide, well, I've obeyed this law, loving neighbor as myself. Every time it was easy and convenient for me to do, 
But I know that God doesn't expect me to go this far, even though neighbor encompasses everyone on this globe. And therefore, I'm not just going to love my brother or sister at home and my mom and dad at home or my best friend, but I'm going to love the person who hates my guts. And so it's not observing some laws over others. It's observing all laws and it's observing all laws in every single context and circumstance. Consider three applications, obviously, very quickly. Consider the assembly. Hebrews 10.25 says, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. Someone will just say, well, that means the first day of the week. Where's your proof? Where's your evidence? Assembly is a general term which, which notifies every single time a congregation assembles. It's an assembly. And so we've scheduled certain times where we assemble regularly, and that's known by the members. And it's the same thing when a gospel meeting rolls around. Are there more assemblies? Certainly so. Are there assemblies that are out of the norm? Certainly so. But there are assemblies nonetheless. He says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. Now, a faith that is perfect is a faith that is going to assemble every time the saints assemble. No ifs, ands, or buts. And I know we have to specify this every time. He's not talking about when you're sick, that's wrong, or, or when you absolutely can't get there, that's wrong. But when you have scheduled something with the knowledge of this other thing that is scheduled with the church, that is sin. When you decide that you just don't have enough energy to come to the worship assembly. And so you don't come that one time. That's forsaking the assembly. Would you get up and go to work? And so here's this idea where someone will try to justify, well, I'm there every single Sunday morning, but I don't have to be there throughout the gospel meeting. They're doing the exact same thing that those people who showed partiality did. I show love to every single rich person I come into contact with, but I just can't get down with this grimy old poor person. They have held the faith and partiality and their faith is incomplete. And you've sinned. You've not kept that law. You've sinned. And it's the same thing with the assembly. You can show up on Sunday morning and with the full capability of showing up on Sunday evening, you decide not to. You have forsaken the assembly and you have sinned. And it's the same thing with any other assembly that's called. Perfect faith is just that. But consider the command to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against his soul is what 1 Peter 2 and 11 says. And some are enumerated in Galatians chapter 5. But for example, someone says, well, I'm abstaining from the fleshly lust. You see, I'm not committing adultery or fornication. But then they go to work and they're, they're wearing immodest clothing or go to school and they're wearing immodest clothing. And so they may not be committing adultery or fornication, but they certainly are committing uncleanness and lewdness. I'm not going to sleep with anyone that I'm not married to, but I'll go to the dance and dance with them. There's another transgression of asalgia or lewdness, the unchaste handling of males and females, licentiousness. And so you can't rationalize. You can't decide, well, this sounds a lot worse than this. Someone may even say, I may hate him, but it's not like I'm cutting his head off. It's not like I'm murdering him. And they rationalize. But if you sin in one point of the law, you sin in the whole law. And that's not perfect faith to say, well, I've done 95% of what God said to do. And so I must be okay. That's really what Phariseeism is. That's what the Pharisees believe. That my righteous acts will outweigh my unrighteous acts. We can't rationalize and justify what we're doing by what we're not doing. That's not how it works. Perfect faith is that which is complete. And lastly, consider a command of God that a lot of congregations don't observe. 
And it's because it's not convenient. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, according to, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. He commanded that in 1 Corinthians 5 to the Corinthian church. And in 2 Corinthians 2, he talks about that very th- same thing. And he says, For to this end I wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. They were a church of pride. They would have thought that they were a faithful church. But they were the same person in the same congregation, like is described in James 2, as someone who says, I have faith, but they don't show that by the works. They don't obey God in all things. And withdrawing from the disorderly brother, exercising church discipline is one of those things. And you know, it also goes with this idea of a congregation who actually does withdraw from the disorderly members and practices church discipline, deals with sin, doesn't just ignore it. But when it comes down to a person's family member, they don't. That's the same thing as as holding that royal law with partiality. I'm going to observe it with the rich man, but not with the poor man. I'm going to observe it with this person who's not related to me in blood, but I'm not going to observe it toward the person who is related to me. But then they go along and, and they think, but, but I'm doing all of these other things good. I, I'm showing my faith in all of these other ways. But it's not perfect faith. That's faith without works. And we need to get the full context of this. It's, it's legitimate to speak of it with a denominational person and saying that you're not saved by faith only. But what James is doing is addressing Christians who are keeping parts of the law and the other parts that don't sound good enough to them, they're deciding not to do it. Or they're holding some parts of the faith with partiality. When James talks about faith and works, that's what he's talking about. That's what perfect faith is. It's not juggling the commands of God and tossing them out one by one as you get too many there in the juggling process. It is ordering yourself by God's word and doing each and everything God tells you to do and in every circumstance that it's to be applied. And that's why it's called perfect because mature Christians do that. That's that's reaching maturity as James 1 talks about. And we can't fool ourselves. That's why James 1 talks about the person who is a hearer of the word but not a doer. He's fooling himself. He's deluding himself. He looks in that mirror and then sees something, but he goes away and forgets what kind of man that he saw in that mirror. But so many Christians are doing that. They're thinking that God is going to see it's okay because I'm doing all of this even though I'm not doing this. Or I'm doing this even though I'm not doing all of this. But that's not the faith that justifies before God. Faith without works, as graphic as it may seem, is dead. We want to offer an invitation to anyone this evening who has not obeyed the gospel, knowing that you may believe that God is, you may believe in his son as the Savior and the Messiah and the Son of God, but that's not enough. You've got to show that you believe in God. Just like the Egyptians crossed the Red Sea, you must Submit to the watery grave of baptism. That's showing faith in the working of God who was able to raise Jesus up from the dead. He'll raise you up from being dead in sin. Colossians 2 and verse 12. And if you are here and have obeyed the gospel, but you've fallen short in any sense or fashion, we want to extend the invitation call to you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing this elected song.